Good morning and thank you for tuning in again. I hope this video finds that you and your families are doing well. My name is David Creech. I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see our times of services on the screen here um, and you can check out our, our website at www.godsredeemed.org and the times of services are also there on the website kind of in the upper upper left menu today we're going to continue our study in the new testament book of acts last week we we finished up chapters two and three and we'll cover chapters four and five today that should put us back on track as far as the syllabus is concerned now, last week we were, we were talking about the last part of chapter 2, and we, uh, we witnessed the beginning of the church, the same church that, that Jesus said that he would build in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, uh, would build future tense. So we, we asked the question on what was the church to be built. Certainly we could answer that question by saying that the, the church would be, would be built on Jesus, but more specifically, even Jesus himself said the church would be built on the very confession that Peter made up in verse 16, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We, we talked about how it is the Lord himself, uh, that it is Jesus who adds to the church those who are being saved uh, there from Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. And finally, we asked the question, what church does he add them to? And we answered, his church. Uh, we, we saw Peter and John preaching in the temple area, something that verse 46 says that they, they were doing daily. We saw explosive growth in the church with more than 3,000 souls uh, being added to their number. That would include both men and women. Up in verse 43, it says that fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Um, then in, in chapter 3, we, we saw that lame man being healed, that miracle being performed, the Holy Spirit using these many signs and wonders, and this miracle to confirm to the people the message that these men spoke was indeed from the God of heaven. Now, by way of overview of the two chapters that we will cover today, we see the arrest of, of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and verse 3. Let me get over to that. E even as explosive growth in the church continues, with, with 5,000 men being mentioned here in verse 4, uh, Peter and John's arrest was for preaching the things that they had seen and heard, for preaching the good news of the gospel. We see them brought before the Sanhedrin, the, the, that's the Jewish high court or the supreme court, if you will, for religious affairs. Uh, we will see how all the members of the Sanhedrin marvel at the boldness of these uneducated men there in verse 13. 
The council discusses amongst themselves the need to severely threaten them, as we see in verse 17, and, and, and they ju- do just that, you know, telling them, commanding them, in verse 18, not to speak or to teach any more in the name of this Jesus, uh, who, by the way, they had already set up in verse 12, uh, that was the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. We see the reply of, of Peter and John in verses 19 and 20, which is basically, and I'll just paraphrase this a little bit. You can see it on the screen there, but they're saying, you be the judge about whether it is right to listen to you or to listen to God. How can we not tell of the things that we have seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears? We'll see them released and return to their fellow apostles. And despite the boldness that they have already displayed, these men prayed for additional boldness in verse 31. Uh, The very foundation of the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they are once again filled with the Holy Spirit and go forth with even more boldness. In in the last part of chapter 4, there beginning in verse 32, uh, and also in the first part of chapter 5, there is a very specific need that's being addressed. Uh, we'll talk more about that, that need when we get into the details. But, but some Christians are selling possessions and, and giving the proceeds to the apostles in order to meet those needs. Of course, as, as much as anything, such giving is about what is in the heart. And we see a contrast here between the right way to do that with Barnabas and the wrong way to do that with, with a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And I've got that on the slide as, as a tale of two contrasts. Uh, later in chapter 5, <clears throat> and right around verse 14, uh, we, we see yet another indication of the explosive growth of the church when it says, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You know, if we were to recap, and I have this on the slide here, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, on the day of Pentecost, that says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And verse 41 gives us a number as about 3,000 souls. Of course, that number would have included both men and women. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, we're told about 5,000 men that are mentioned as being added. And we're not told why only the men are mentioned in that specific instance. But it still gives us a good idea of the tremendous growth. And then, of course, here in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, multitudes of both men and women are being added. What we need to wrap our minds around is the the huge need for the daily teaching and preaching of the gospel message, along with the, the accompanying miracles and signs and wonders to confirm that message. Now, up to this point, only the 12 apostles, emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit, are doing that, and they certainly have their hands 
Then as we get about halfway through chapter 5, right around verse 17, uh, we see the apostles imprisoned again, only this time freed by an angel. Now, we don't know the names of of all those that were imprisoned at this point. Could have been all of them. Uh, But what we do know is it was more than one of the apostles, and we know that Peter was among them. And so, you know, members of the Sanhedrin are just fit to be tied, as we would say here in the South, that that Peter and the apostles, um, the apostles that were with Peter, have have mysteriously escaped from their prison cell. And, And then so they have Peter and the other apostles brought before them again. And verse 26 points out that they did so without violence. Why is that? Because they feared the people. As you can imagine, Peter and, and the the apostles are quite popular at this point. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting that that the first question this this high court asks Peter and the apostles was not, uh, hey, how'd you get out of prison? The door to your cell was still locked. The guards were still at their post. I mean, I think that'd be the question that was on my mind. No, but the first question they asked there in verse 28 is, didn't we strictly command you not to do this? And then we hear that answer in verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. Next, we see a man by the name of Gamaliel entering the scene there in verse 34. Uh, A Pharisee a a teacher of the law, someone held in respect by all the people. He provides some wise advice to the other members of the Sanhedrin, and we'll get to that advice later in the class. And, and then chapter 5 closes out with uh, the verses 41 and 42. And so they departed from the presence of the council. This would be Peter and the apostles rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Oh, if we could have such a a, a revival of the gospel message today, where people are genuinely interested in God's amazing plan of redemption, and where people are, are genuinely interested in seeking the will of God and in doing it. So in the time we have left today, I want to go back and expand on a few points uh, that we mentioned here in chapters 4 and 5. Recall again from chapter 3 that Peter and John had been teaching and preaching in the temple area. They just healed that man who had been lame from birth, and and the people were greatly amazed at what they saw. You you can imagine that the news of something like that would have spread like wildfire. You know, people from all over the city would be coming together to see for themselves and to hear what these men had to say. We'll see a little bit later on that not just people in the city of Jerusalem, but people from all around the surrounding region were were coming into Jerusalem. And then Acts chapter 4, the beginning of that, let's just kind of, excuse me, let's just jump jump over to that. Verses 1 through 3 tell us that the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, I want you to keep that word in mind for a few moments, uh, they come upon them and put them into custody. Now, why do they put them into custody? Well, verse 2 says that they were greatly disturbed. Now, what were they greatly disturbed about? 
certainly there had been a great commotion at the, at the temple, but, but it was for good reason. It was cause for celebration. A man who had been lame from birth had been completely and instantly healed and went about walking and leaping and praising God. And we see in verse 22 that the man that was healed was over 40 years old. So, so that doesn't seem like something these men would be arrested for, does it? Let's jump back over to Acts chapter 4 there in the beginning. Uh, verse 2 goes on to say that it was because they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Ah, now we're getting somewhere because this powerful sect of the Jews, the Sadducees, did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. Imagine how difficult it must have been for these Sadducees as a powerful religious and political party, headed by the high priest, no less, to have to deal, first of all, with the teachings of Christ himself about the resurrection. After all, Jesus claimed that he was the resurrection. So what do you think that did to their credibility? Then after they managed to get Jesus crucified, the worst thing imaginable happens to these Sadducees who believe there is no resurrection. The body of Jesus disappears from the tomb, just disappears, despite having put a massive stone at the entrance of the tomb and sealing it, and despite having set guards there to keep the followers of Christ from stealing the body. Imagine the fallout they must have had to deal with, all the explaining they had to do. And now, now these followers of Christ are sprouting up everywhere, and they're preaching the same thing. They're preaching the resurrection of Christ. Now, this is the first time in the book of Acts that we, we see any of the apostles arrested, but of course it won't be the last. But I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about who these Sadducees were, as well as some of the other sects or divisions of Judaism. We learn from Acts chapter 5 and verse 17 that uh, the high priest, Annas, was of this sect called the Sadducees. And I mentioned Gamaliel just a few minutes ago. And so to muddy the waters even more, Acts chapter 5 and verse 34 says that Gamaliel was a Pharisee. Well, many times throughout the New Testament, we hear mention of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the writers of the law, the, the legal experts, if you will, and the Pharisees were the strictest keepers of the law, both the oral uh, and the written traditions. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that they're often paired together in Scripture. Uh, on a few occasions, we read of this other group called the Sadducees. Now, while the Pharisees and the Sadducees were they were at odds with one another in terms of the way they practiced Judaism. <clears throat> and to say they were at odds with one another is putting it mildly. It seems that both groups found a common uh, enemy, at least that's how they saw it, with Jesus and his claim to be the Messiah, and of course, the message of the gospel taught by his disciples. <clears throat> in the gospels, we see them constantly testing Jesus, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, trying to trip him up, if you will, so that they could 
uh, turn the people against him or so they could find some detail of the law that they could accuse him of breaking. On one occasion, over in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, uh, Jesus referred to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as a brood of vipers. And, and on another occasion, over in Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, yeah, that's a lot of red highlight right there. Uh, Jesus referred to the scribes and the Pharisees as blind guides, in verse 24, who strain out a net and swallow a camel. I've, I've always thought that was a little bit humorous, the way Jesus said that. <clears throat> I know the situation is not funny, but uh, now, of course, Jesus loved all men. He, he loved them with that unconditional agape love that we should all strive to have for our fellow man. So, so why was he so hard on the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because Jesus also knew their hearts, and he could not abide their hypocrisy. He, he compared them down in verse 27 to, to, um, to whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're just rotten to the core, you know, full of dead men's bones, as it says here. <clears throat> but again, who were these Sadducees and Pharisees? Um, well, <clears throat> there were various sects or divisions of Judaism. You, you probably determined that already. Um, and, and by the way, I mentioned Judaism earlier. It is essentially the religion practiced by the Jews. The, the root of the word Judaism comes from the word Judah. Uh, recall that in New Testament times, Judah is the name of the region immediately surrounding Jerusalem. A Jewish historian by the name of Josephus tells us that there were four sects or divisions of Judaism there in the first century. <clears throat> Excuse me. There were the Essenes. These were Jews that took vows of chastity and poverty and often lived in isolated communities. There were the Zealots who, who took their name from the fact that they were zealous for God. And although that sounds like a good thing, they were zealous even to the point of killing those opposed to their interpretation of God's laws. Uh, today, we would refer to that as maybe uh, extremism or a radical form of Judaism. They, they opposed Roman domination and, and as such were a constant thorn in the side of the, the Romans. Josephus referred to them as bandits and robbers. Uh, and interestingly enough, one of the men that Jesus chose as one of his apostles had been a zealot. There were, uh, of course, the Pharisees, the most popular sect of the Jews. As we already mentioned, they believed in a strict adherence to both the, the written and the oral laws. Uh, in fact, their adherence was so strict that Jesus condemned them for for turning the traditions of men into doctrine in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7 through 9. And because of that, that their worship had become useless or, or worthless. They also believed that the soul would live on after death and that those who were evil would be punished for their sins and those 
who were good would be rewarded. And then we finally come to the Sadducees, uh, composed largely of the priests, uh, as well as the upper class or the aristocracy of the Jews. Uh, historians have noted that they were more political than they were religious, uh, but, the, but they did have a focus on proper temple worship, and, and they completely dismissed the idea of a resurrection. You know, the idea of a soul living on after death, and of course, any subsequent reward or punishment in the next world, the next life. For, for them, whatever wealth and power you attained here during this life was it. <clears throat> And so the major distinction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees that is brought out in Scripture is that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection while the Sadducees did not. And we see that very clearly over in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1. <clears throat> you know, Paul is brought before uh, this council, the Sanhedrin, and I'm going to read verses um, 6 through 8, actually. It says, when Paul perceived that one part, that is one part of this council, were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So Paul used that knowledge to his advantage in that instance. <clears throat> uh, a popular memory aid along those lines, maybe you've heard this before. Uh, if not, maybe it'll help out. Uh, help to remember the main difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that when it comes to the resurrection, the Pharisees were fair, you see, because they believed in the resurrection, and the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. So let's jump back over to the beginning of Acts chapter 4, where it says the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, that's Peter and John, and put them into custody. Um, next we see uh, them before the Sanhedrin, this, this council of rulers, elders, and scribes. Uh, we've mentioned that word Sanhedrin a few times but it's important to know that it's not a word we we see in the New Testament, other than the, perhaps the way translators have labeled certain sections, like you see here in my New King James Version. If you, I can just highlight that for you, Sanhedrin. Uh, but church historians tell us that the origin of the Sanhedrin was back in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16, where, where God tells Moses to appoint 70 men of the elders of Israel. Now, over time, and especially in the New Testament times, that, that council of elders came to consist of a mixture of scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, with the high priest as the, um, the president of this council or a religious high court. 
And so uh, Jewish tradition has it that this this council that is we see coming together in verses five and six here in Jerusalem with 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 Annas as the high priest and and some others there was in fact a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Uh, incidentally, it appears uh, that this is the same council of chief priests and and scribes and elders over in Matthew chapter twenty six verses fifty seven through fifty nine with Caiaphas as the high priest that, that sought false testimony against Jesus before handing him over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. Okay, so now that we, that we know something about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and even the Sanhedrin, uh, the council that is questioning Peter and John here, uh, we can see down around uh, verse 7, the question that they asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? And you know, I suspect that many in the council knew the answer to this question. You know, and just as they had maybe tried, they had tried many times to trap Jesus with his words, here they want Peter and John to just come right out and say the name Jesus. And it, and it seems to me that all Peter and John had to do was Say they'd done this in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, that would have been the truth, and that would have completely diffused the situation. But, but instead, they are emboldened by the Holy Spirit, and they thrust the sword of the Spirit deep into these men, hoping to pierce their hearts in the same way that hearts were pierced back on the day of Pentecost. And in uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 10... They come right out and say it. Let it be known to you all. Let it be known to everyone that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Now those words, um, whom God raised from the dead, cut right to the core belief of the Sadducees. And the words, whom you crucified, put the blame for the death of Jesus squarely on all their shoulders. And of course, we also hear those words in verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, Christians are, are sometimes accused of being narrow-minded or intolerant of others because we believe that there's only one road that leads to heaven, and that road goes right through Jesus Christ. But, but there's a difference between uh, tolerance and acceptance. I, I can tolerate someone else's views because they have a right to, to believe what they want to believe. They have every right to do that, but that doesn't mean I have to accept their view as equally true as my view. You know, unfortunately, we live in a society where we're considered intolerant or even racist or xenophobic or homophobic or whatever kind of phobic you want to use just because we don't accept someone else's view as equally true as our views. And by the way, our views are only true if they are the same as God's 
views. <clears throat> you know, regarding being narrow-minded, uh, I would also remind the, everyone that, that Jesus himself was narrow-minded. If we look in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, you know, Jesus said to enter by the narrow gate, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. <clears throat> in the last part of chapter 4, um, we already mentioned that there was a specific need that's being addressed. So let's turn over to that. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. I'm just going to read those verses. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. <clears throat> so here's the unusual situation in Jerusalem at that time. Recall how many devout Jews had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They'd, they'd come from all over the place. Some had traveled great distances. And while they were there, many of them learned about Christ and his new kingdom and became a part of it. Many of these believers would have chosen to extend their stay in Jerusalem in order to learn as much as they could from the apostles. You know, for many of them, their, their livelihoods were back at home, wherever they were from, and they would have perhaps brought just enough money and provisions for a set number of days. For those that had traveled longer distances, they may have even traveled to Jerusalem for Passover and stayed the 50 days between Passover and Pentecost so as not to have to make the journey twice. So <clears throat> we're not talking about believers living in some kind of commune where they sold all their possessions, and there was this sort of a redistribution of wealth. Um, not at all. In fact, there, there's no indication that, that Christians continued to sell possessions and, and share them as they did here. What we're seeing is a, is, a, is a feeling of love and generosity toward one another and a, and a willingness to share when there was a need, and, and certainly there was a need here. And we'll see that this need continues through about chapter 6 of Acts, for sure. Uh, many of us have, have heard or, or maybe even used the phrase, my house is your house. Maybe you've had a guest over and you said, make yourself at home. Help yourself to the fridge or the pantry. And that's what they're doing here in verse 32. And that's what it means when it says that neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Uh, there were some that went so far as to sell land or homes, as we see uh, in verse 34. Uh, they laid the money at the apostles' feet to be distributed wherever there was a need, verse 35. And, and one such example that's highlighted for us 
is with uh, that of Joseph, as we see there in chapter 36. Now, the, the old and the new King James versions will use the name Joseph. Uh, most other translations have the name Joseph. They're, they're the same name, different spellings. Um, but this is our introduction to this man that was a Levite from the island of Cyprus, a man that the apostles named Barnabas. We're even told here why they named him Barnabas. It means son of encouragement. Uh, your translation might say son of consolation. Uh, we're going to hear his name a lot in the book of Acts, uh, and in fact, in the remainder of the New Testament. We, we don't know any of the details surrounding this transaction. We don't know where the land was. Maybe it was back on, on the island of Cyprus. We don't know. We're not told. We don't know how much he sold the land for. We just know that he sold it and that he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, as we see there in verse 37. It was there for the apostles to use as they saw fit. But we also have another example highlighted for us, beginning there in... Acts chapter 5, it's that of a husband and a wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, this Ananias, not to be confused with Annas, the name of the high priest we've already mentioned, or the name of another high priest with the same name that we'll talk about later in Acts, also named Ananias. Now, we mentioned uh, Ananias and Sapphira in our overview of Acts chapter 1 through 12. Uh, that's in the second lesson. And we, we mentioned that they did a good thing. They, they sold a possession. Again, we're not uh, sure what it was. Maybe it was land. We're not given the specifics. And just like Barnabas, they laid money from that sale at the apostles' feet so that it could be used to help those in the church that were in need. And that sounds like a generous thing to do, doesn't it? But during this process, they also did a bad thing. And both of them were struck dead by the Holy Spirit. Now, now what is it that they did that was worthy of being struck down like that? Well, let, let's read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 to kind of get this, uh, to set the scene here. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife's wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard of these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter uh, asked her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together 
to test the spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Now, some of you might still be wondering, well, what was it that they did that was so bad that the Holy Spirit struck them dead? Well, it boils down to their motivation for giving and their intent to deceive while making the gift. Perhaps they were seeking the kind of praise that that Barnabas and, and others no doubt had received for their generous gifts. Regardless of the original motivation, there, there appears to be collusion on their part. You know, they agreed together to do this and to deceive the apostles and their fellow Christians with this gift. And so Peter asked the question in, in, in verse 4, and, you know, I'll just kind of paraphrase it. You know, it was yours before you sold it. It, it was still yours after you sold it. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? And then ends with, you know, you have not lied to men, but to God. So their sin was not in just giving part of the proceeds. All of the proceeds from the sale was theirs to do as they wished. Peter points that out plainly. Their sin was in pretending that they were giving all of the proceeds, while in reality keeping part of it back for themselves. So as we, we finish up our lesson today, I want you to note in, in verse 12 <clears throat> that through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Again, the Holy Spirit continuing to confirm the word spoken by these men. And in verse 14, believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I also want you to notice from verses 15 and 16 that, again, all of these things being done by the apostles were not done in secret, but very openly, so that the number of eyewitnesses to these things is increasing exponentially. And that's important to note because in a courtroom today, a judge or a jury can be convinced of the truth with just one or two witnesses, eyewitnesses. If we consider Luke to be a reliable historian, then we can see that the number of eyewitnesses to these events was absolutely staggering. And if Luke was not a reliable historian, if he just made up this stuff, then, then his historical account would have been easily dismissed there in the first century by those who were there. In verse 16, we see uh, people from surrounding cities bringing their sick to Jerusalem. Um, verse 15, we see that many of them were just being laid out in the streets on beds and couches with the hope that just the shadow of Peter might fall on them as they pass by. And that's absolutely incredible. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 17, the Sadducees, again. It says, Then as the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. 
That's the word used by the Old and the New King James versions. A, a lot of the translations will actually use the word jealousy there. They were filled with jealousy. But we, we need to be a little bit careful with that word jealousy. Um, the, the word indignation pretty much has one meaning. You know, strong displeasure at something that's considered unjust or offensive. That's indignation. But the word jealousy has has multiple meanings. It can be a certainly it can be a feeling of resentment against someone, against their success, for instance. And that's probably the most common way that it's used today. But it can also refer to an intolerance of unfaithfulness or rivalry. And uh, I'll just show you an example of that over in Acts chapter twenty and verse five. This is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the context is uh, of idolatry, and God says to Moses, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, does that mean that, that our God is resentful of another God's success? Or does it mean that he does not tolerate unfaithfulness or rivalry? So I think you get my point. Now, I'm not going to say that there wasn't any resentment on the part of the Sadducees toward the success that the apostles were having with the people. I'm sure there was some of that. But but here, they do indeed have this sort of righteous indignation. We, we've heard that phrase before. Uh, and it's been said that the danger with righteous indignation is that it tip, is typically anything but righteous. So So they have this righteous indignation toward these apostles who continue to preach Jesus and the resurrection, uh, despite having been severely threatened not to do it. And of course, they are imprisoned, they're freed by an angel of the Lord, they're brought before the council again. And, and when asked why they continue to do what they've been told not to do, their reply is, we ought to obey God rather than men. Let me kind of get back over uh, near where that verse is. We ought to obey God rather than men. We, you know, we need to keep that in mind even today. We know, for instance, from Romans 13 and verse 1 that we're to be subject to governing authorities. And over in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 tells us that we're to submit to every ordinance or every law of man. But when the man's laws conflict with God's laws, then we ought to obey God rather than men. When the, when the council hears Peter and the apostles say this, verse 33 says that they were furious and plotted to kill them. And one final note about Gamaliel as, as we'll close our lesson here. We, we, we mentioned him earlier in our overview uh, verse 34 says that he was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, someone that was held in respect by all the people. So Gamaliel addresses the council, and he, and he talks about several other men who had drawn followers after them. He, he gives a couple of examples, that of uh, Thutis and Judas of Galilee. Those are the examples he raises. Uh, he points out that those men perished, and, and their causes perished with them. And so his advice down in verses 38 and 39 
uh, of Acts chapter 5 there. He, say, they, he says, <clears throat> leave these men alone. He even goes so far as to say, keep away from these men. For if this work or this plan is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is from God, you cannot overthrow it. What great advice. Did they listen? Absolutely not. So we're out of time for today. Uh, thank you for watching or listening, whichever the case may be. Uh, tune in next week, and Lord willing, we'll get into chapter 6 and part of chapter 7, talking about the choosing of the seven, as well as uh, Stephen being accused of blasphemy. So thank you.